0: Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of Talking Research. I'm Mark Harries, Chief Investment Officer at Square Mile, and today I'm talking challenges facing investors in the current market environment, the role of central banks in inflation and more, with Hugh Gimber, Global Market Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and Simona Gaberini, Executive Director, Senior Market Strategist at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Thank you both for joining me. Now, the first question I'd like to ask is the challenges for investors currently is that the proportion of their portfolios, which is traditionally allocated to cash and or bonds, offers a negative real return after taking into account inflation. It may be tempting, therefore, to abandon risk disciplines and raise equity exposure. But is that wise? Q.
1: Well, thanks for having me, first of all, Mark. And I think the short answer is we don't think that's wise, quite frankly. Now, clearly, negative real returns are not a particularly attractive prospect for any investor. I think everyone can agree with that. But when I think about portfolio construction, this really comes back down to the idea of a 60-40 portfolio. So typically, you might have 60 in equities and 40 in bonds and cash as a reasonable starting point. So we don't think that principle in itself is dead. We still think a balanced portfolio makes sense. But where we're rethinking this is to look at what you would use to build that 40%, to build that ballast bucket or build that diversification bucket. Because historically, government bonds have been a key source of diversification in portfolios. I think the challenge today for investors is that they're actually a key source of risk as the central banks start to withdraw all of the stimulus that they've been providing over the past couple of years. So investors really have to drill down into what they're trying to diversify against. What is the risk that you're trying to protect against? And we still think that government bonds will have some benefit in portfolios if it's a pure growth scare that you're trying to diversify against. But if it's inflation that's the problem, which is clearly something that's at the top of everyone's minds at the moment, then we think that you're probably gonna to have to look elsewhere look to alternative assets, things like infrastructure investments, we think have a role to play, and then also potentially absolute return type strategies or hedge funds as well.
0: Thank you. Simona?
2: First of all, as well, thank you for having me, uh, Mark. Um We broadly agree with what Hugh said. Um, certainly in recent years, as equities have marched to new highs and interest rates have descended to new lows, a simple mix of 60% equities and 40% investment grade bonds would have satisfied most investors. However, in a world where valuations are already high and can possibly rise much further and interest rates are close to their historical lows, returns from such a portfolio are likely to be lower. There are a few things that investors can do. Uh, I think in the first instance, it's very important that investors recalibrate their expectations. Uh, For context, uh, in the past decade, a 60-40 portfolio would have generated returns of around 11% if you use the S&P as a proxy um, for equities and a US aggregate bond index as a proxy for fixed income. After inflation, that would have been uh, uh, an equivalent to roughly 9% annually. And it's a well above the long-term average of roughly 6%. So we've not always had such strong returns. So in the first, um, the first step is to recalibrate those. Once investors have done that, then they need to establish a strategy can, that can be more effective in the current environment of lower returns. And one way to incorporate uh, uh, that is to incorporate higher income-producing asset classes into portfolios. So on the fixed income side, as you said, you can look at assets like corporate high-yield, municipal high-yield bank loans and emerging market debt, uh, which may increase their income and have historically shown little sensitivity to changes in interest rates. In equity markets, investors can potentially boost income by considering global real estate, global infrastructures, MLPs. We also see opportunities in uh, emerging market equities or small caps, liquid alternatives, private assets, which uh, are under invested at the moment.
0: Now, we used to worry about how much money we borrowed. Should we still worry about government debt levels? Or is it that we never really needed to worry? And I'll come back to Simona first for that question.
2: Perfect. And thank you. Uh, We certainly saw the benefits of accumulating debt in the role of uh, large fiscal support programs during the initial phases of the pandemic. When economies closed down, they were a critical policy response to avoid worse economic outcomes. Uh, They supported household incomes, uh, kept businesses afloat and helped stabilize financial markets. However, as the initial recovery from the pandemic gives way to a new normal, the balance of benefits and costs of debt accumulation is increasingly tilting towards costs. And so as the pandemic turns into an endemic, considerations about debt sustainability will take center stage again. These include debt servicing. It might be lower today, but with interest rates rising, it might not be for very long. The possibility of that distress distress and defaults constraints that. That may impose on policy space and effectiveness and the possible crowding out of uh, private sector investments. And those considerations are particularly important in emerging markets. Uh, uh, previous waves uh, of debt ended in widespread financial crisis. We all remember the Latin American debt crisis in the 80s and this, the East Asian financial crisis in the late 90s. So. In short, the focus at the moment might not be on debt levels yet because interest rates are still close to record lows and we're not yet completely out of the pandemic. So some support from governments is still warranted. But as the pandemic turns into an endemic infection, the debt that has been accumulated will have to be repaid. And that's when that sustainability will come back into focus.
0: Thank you, Simona. Hugh?
1: Yeah, I think I just emphasise one of the points in particular that Simona made, which is it's not about the level of debt. It's about the cost of servicing that debt that matters for markets. That's the focus. And so when interest rates have been so low in recent years, governments have found it very easy to be able to manage the cost of servicing that debt. If I just take some numbers for the UK as an example, go back 40 years, go back to the start of the 1980s, and look at the costs that the UK government were having to pay to service their debt levels, that was about 4% of GDP 40 years ago, because 10-year guilt yields were at about 15%, okay? At the time, debt to GDP, the amount of debt that the UK was holding was about 40%. Now, that 40% has got to close to 100% over that 40 years. So the UK government now has vastly greater amounts of debt to GDP. But actually, when you look at the cost of servicing that, that's come down from 4% of GDP to 1% of GDP. Why? Because gilt yields are that much lower. So without getting too bogged down in the numbers, I think the point here is focus on the cost of servicing, focus on the cost of those interest payments, and understand whether they're affordable for governments. Don't only focus on the level of debt itself.
0: Thank you. Well, that's a nice segue into my next question, which is have the central banks through their bond buying programs, otherwise known as quantitative easing, and through holding interest rates at such low levels, actually been responsible for inflation? So, Hugh, do you want to start with that?
1: Yeah, of course. So a typical economic textbook would tell you that that's how it works, right? So central banks are easing policy because they're trying to boost demand, get people spending, get corporate spending. And that should help the economy, but that should also put some upward pressure on inflation. I think the challenge for the central banks today is that lots of the inflation that we're seeing is not just because of demand, but because of challenges in supply. So it's the challenges that we've seen in the global supply chains, Asian manufacturing, Asian production, for example, really being hit very hard by the pandemic when factories were having to shut down with the Delta variant last summer. So this puts... Central Bank's in a really hard position because their tools are generally designed to control the level of demand in the economy. But actually, they're having to try and fight inflation, despite the fact that that's being driven by the supply chain problems and the supply of labor in particular, worker shortages leading to rising wages. That's the responsible factor behind the very high levels of inflation today. So in short, it's tough because the toolkit that they have to try and tackle this economy is not really designed to cope with the specific sources of inflation that we see today. Simona? Um,
2: I broadly agree with Hugh. With, uh, uh, inflation is a monetary phenomenon, so central bank's ultra-loose monetary policy has certainly contributed to it. But then if we remember what happened after the global financial crisis, central bank's uh, ease policy a lot, on the back of that crisis as well, but that did not result in, in inflation. And the reason is that this time around, we've had a combination of extra loose monetary and fiscal policy that has created the predicament we're in. And of course, as you said, uh, supply-side disruptions, which have been created by the unusual nature of this recession, uh, a, a pandemic, uh, have obviously caused uh, um, a lot of the inflation we are seeing. In the US, for example, we are estimate that roughly 80% of the inflation overshoot last year came from supply-constrained sectors such as autos, furniture, sports and goods. And it's a similar story in other countries as well, including the UK, where reopening effects and supply, supply bottlenecks have dominated. So, so now, as, as you said, central banks have to tighten policy, and this is likely to create some volatility in the market because we got used to unlimited limited amount of liquidity available. Equities sold off sharply and we've seen a sharp rotation out of growth into value stocks in recent weeks. But eventually markets tend to digest higher rates, particularly when the backdrop remains one of strong global growth, like the one we expect this year. Just one final point of like to make is looking beyond these transitory pressures. We do think that we are entering a higher inflation regime relative to the last cycle. And this new regime is in part the result of changes at an institutional level. Central banks have become more tolerant of inflation because they are more tuned to social concerns about inequality and inclusive growth. that being said, there are obviously many reasons why we don't think we'll, we'll have hyperinflation for a prolonged pe- period of time. And to name a few, technology, but also higher, a higher retirement age, uh, bigger participation. But overall, we are in a new regime.
0: Now, after many years of disappointing productivity growth, do recent innovations herald the long-awaited return of robust gains? Simona?
2: That's a very good question, Mark. The pandemic has provided an unexpected and I dare say say much needed boost to productivity in the major economies by pushing businesses to adopt process innovations that were technologically possible already before the crisis, but largely underutilized. And of course, we have had uh, the move towards working from home and we've had a boost from uh, uh, from that as well to productivity. Uh, as the pandemic turns into an endemic and life goes back to normal, it is uh, normal to wonder about this boost to productivity and whether this will actually last. And we see three reasons why the underlying pace of major productivity growth will continue to accelerate. The first is mean reversion in the US the UK and the euro area, growth in both labour productivity and total factor productivity appears to have picked up. And this is consistent with our finding that total factor productivity growth historically tends to mean revert slowly over time and suggests that further productivity gains are ahead. The second reason is evidence of recent technological acceleration and potentially the second wave of the IT revolution. Investments in intellectual property products have already started to rise before 2020 in the major advanced economies. And the third reason is evidence of increased economic dynamism. Uh, New business formation and US patent applications have surged since the start of the pandemic and the major contribution of the IT sector to US productivity growth has picked up significantly in recent years. So overall, we do see pandemic-driven productivity gains to persist, implying a longer uh, runaway for the expansion phase of the economic cycle.
0: Thank you, Simona. Hugh? Yeah, just two points I'd add,
1: I think, on that. I, I broadly agree, I think the outlook for productivity is more optimistic now Two points. So first of all, business investment is key here, because if you're going to see the productivity gains come through, you need businesses to be willing to put their money where their mouth is. You need CapEx to get going. And typically you see a strong link between higher levels of CapEx and higher levels of productivity gains. And it's been really reassuring to see that actually in the past 12 months or so, businesses seem to be exiting the pandemic with more confidence to spend you think back to what governments did in 2020 to protect private sector balance sheets. They stepped in and said that if there's going to be a balance sheet that gets hit, it will be the government's balance sheet rather than the corporate sector or rather than households as well. So that puts businesses in a very different position now to the one that they found themselves in coming out of the financial crisis, where they found that actually it was several years of balance sheet repair that were required before they could get spending. Second point is about wage growth because businesses are under real pressure now to hire. They know that they need more workers, they want to be expanding their businesses to tap into the strong demand. But to hire more workers, it's becoming more costly. So that's giving them another good reason to automate where possible. Because if they're deciding that they're going to have to spend, they can either spend on higher wages now and keep spending on higher wages, or they can make that initial capex investment but then try and reap some of the gains of higher productivity ahead. So I think there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic about the outlook.
0: Thank you. Now, finally, what about the major threats such as the current conflicts between Russia and Ukraine, a more resistant COVID variants or the risks associated with climate change? Are these really threats or opportunities for investors? And particularly in light of the increase in global poverty and the growing dispersion between rich and the poor? Hugh, can you uh, kick off that one, please?
1: Yeah, of course. I I suspect, Mark, we have enough content here for another podcast in itself, but I'll make a couple of brief points on this. So Russia and the Ukraine is front of everyone's minds at the moment, and, and quite rightly, I think. Whenever you're dealing with a geopolitical issue, I think you need to come back to a very basic framework, which is, okay. we're all following the geopolitical headlines, but where is the economic impact? Because if you don't get an economic impact, then you shouldn't get a market impact. So you go back to something like the US-China trade war, your economic impact was a big hit to business confidence, a big slowdown in capex, a big slowdown in spending, that gave you your market impact as a consequence. So I think we have to recognize, you know, very few people have any edge whatsoever in being able to predict where this scenario is going to go. You know, I think it's really unpredictable at the moment and investors shouldn't be trying to second guess the next move of politicians. But if you're using that framework, you say, well, okay, the economic impact is likely to come through with energy prices. That's where we'd likely see the squeeze if this situation does escalate. And therefore, you can start to think through, okay, well, how would this feed through into a market impact? So you're probably looking at higher oil prices in the short term you're looking at a potential hit to growth in that scenario, you're looking at some more upward pressure on inflation in that scenario, and then you can start to play out the different market impacts using that way of kind of thinking through from the headlines to the economy, to the market. So I'll I'll pause there on that point. One other thing I just want to add to the mix, you mentioned this kind of link between global poverty and the pressure that we're seeing from climate change, Lots in the headlines in the UK at the moment about the energy price hikes um, that have come in April and the, the cost of living pressures that we're seeing. I expect in 2022 we're going to hear a lot more about the need to create a just transition. That is, the need to try and ensure that climate policies are designed to share the benefits of the transition to a cleaner energy system with those whose livelihoods are most at risk from the changes. So it's another way of saying something like the UK government's levelling up agenda fits into that bucket. What they're trying to do is make sure that you're creating green jobs in parts of the country where you're perhaps most likely to see job pressures from the move away from fossil fuels. So lots we could dig into, but look out this year for focus on the just transition and think about that is going to impact government policy.
0: Thank you, Simona.
2: Um, I would only add that those are obviously all risks that we're monitoring very closely. I'll start with the variants since uh, uh, that's not being covered. I'm obviously not an epidemiologist, so i leave it to them to discuss how the pandemic is going to evolve from a health crisis perspective. But what I can say is that there has been a diminishing economic impact from new variants, because there is a sense that uh, we have to learn to live with the virus, at least from an economic point of view. And so governments have been increasingly reluctant to, to close down the entire economy as new waves have come along. When it comes to geopolitical risks, um, there is obviously no shortage of them. And at the moment, the focus is on Russia-Ukraine uh, crisis. I think I agree with, with the points you made. Uh, the biggest potential impact would be uh, stemming from the interdependence between Russia and the EU, and that is related to the old Energy uh, supply and demand, and linked to the energy crisis. So, I would say, from an economic point of view, for sure, the the biggest impact would be on growth in the eurozone, inflation. Um, there are also because of these interdependencies, um, reasons to believe that maybe we will not get to such an escalation because Russia, uh, to give you an idea, uh, exports about uh, uh, 72% of their gas to to the EU. So they are also very dependent uh, on the the EU in terms of their uh, revenues uh, as a country. Uh, Having said that, Aside from inflation growth, uh, um, gas shortages also have implications for the cost of decarbonization in Europe, uh, which leads me to the broader theme of climate change. Um, There is obviously a lot of uncertainty around uh, the impact that climate change would have uh, on uh, uh, the economy and on inflation. I think most people would agree that the economic impact overall would be negative and the inflation impact would be rise in inflation. Um, There are obviously implications for financial stability, which is why central banks have also taken a keen interest in this topic. That said, climate risk is both an investment risk and an opportunity in our view. In aggregate, we estimate a global investment opportunity in green infrastructure alone of 56 trillion dollars in order to achieve global net zero by 2050. And the narrowing window for governments and economies to reach net zero means that it is important for investors to consider adapting their portfolios already today.
0: Well, thank you both for joining me today. It's been great to hear your thoughts and thank you to the listeners. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Talking Research. To keep up to date with the series, please subscribe to our newsletter or you can follow us on Spotify and Apple Music. Thank you again.
2: This podcast is only aimed at professional advisors and regulated firms and should not be passed on to or relied upon by any other persons. It is not intended for retail investors who should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this podcast, remembering that past performance is not an indication of future performance. It is published by and remains the copyright of Square Mile Investment Consulting and Research. Square Mile makes no warranties or representations regarding the accuracy or completeness of the information contained herein. This podcast represents the views and forecasts of Square Mile at the date of issue and may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. Nothing in this podcast shall be deemed to constitute a regulated activity or an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity. Thank you.